Good morning, church. There is no children's church today. Sorry, Joe. Should have tipped you off to that. It is a fifth Sunday, so we don't have coverage for fifth Sunday children's church. So if you're interested in doing children's church on fifth Sundays, it only happens four times a year. So uh, it's a pretty light load you got to lift there. Uh, come talk to uh, Julie Emmett. She'd be happy to tell you all about children's church. Uh, and, by the way, if there are any four-year-olds here that get, are getting antsy, parents, uh, the nursery is prepared to take any four-year-olds this morning. So just know that you have that option available to you. Uh, be sure to stop by the VBS table uh, after the service. Uh, my wife thinks she's got everyone kind of squared away from uh, that list that went missing. But uh, just confirm with her that, you've, uh, that she's got you. And that'll be great. Uh, this last week, if you've heard um, through the grapevine, uh, I was, in fact, in a car accident last week. Uh, it's in the prayer sheet. Uh, so that way you don't have to hear through the grapevine any longer. Uh, everyone's fine. It was uh, in our big van. So, uh, and all the kids were with me as well. We were on our way home from the church from piano lessons. And uh, it was my fault. So I, I guess the, the only real injury in that incident was my pride. And... To make matters worse, it happened right across the street from the Duchess School of Driving. So, yeah. Uh, and what a blessing. Uh, Elisa DeWitt, I don't, don't mean to put you on the spot, but Elisa just happened to be driving by moments after the accident. She was there pretty uh, quick on the scene. And uh, she took care of the kids while I dealt with the, uh, the officers and the emergency responders and uh, it was great. She had blankets and books, and like it was like a picnic out there. It was pretty cool. So, thank you. All right, let's get to the word, shall we? So we've been in John chapter six for a few weeks now, and it began with Jesus feeding the five thousand, which, as we discussed, could have been as large as twenty thousand when you factor in women and children. Jesus was, uh, after that, walking on water. Uh, and then, of course, last week we had his well-known uh, discourse, his teaching on being the bread of life. And today we're going to finish John chapter 6 uh, as we come to a point of decision. How will the people respond? How will they receive this teaching? But most importantly for us today, how will you respond? How will you respond so grab your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6, starting in verse 60. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1060. And once you're there, I invite you to stand with me, if you're able, out of reverence for God's word, and follow along with me as I read. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe 
and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this teaching of yours that we have preserved in the Holy Scriptures. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, the bread of life. And Holy Spirit, we ask for your help to illumine, open our eyes and our hearts to hear and to receive your word with joy and gladness, knowing that you alone have the words of eternal life. And may we be changed this morning, made to look that much more like Jesus than when we first set foot through these doors this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we've got three points here revolving around the idea of words. And this first point is choking on words. First, right off the bat, looking at uh, verse 60. The group here is identified as Jesus' disciples. This is not the crowd. This is disciples. But it's not the twelve either. These, these are disciples, more broadly speaking, the many who had been following Jesus and his teaching for some amount of time now. They were followers. They were the fan club. They would have liked Jesus' Facebook page or followed him on Twitter. But this scene shows them grumbling Jesus has just taught on being the bread of life and and, and they say to themselves, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The Greek is very clear here. It's, It's not that these people are confused or that this is intellectually hard to understand. What Jesus is saying is, no, they they understand perfectly what Jesus is saying. The problem is not their understanding or their intellect. It was accepting. Jesus' teaching was intolerable to their senses, to their sensitivities. Now, if you know me, you probably know that I'm a bit of an apologetics geek. And I I enjoy intellectual arguments for the existence of God, all that kind of stuff. there's, There's a wonderful field of study. Uh, But at the end of the day, we've got to realize that no one is ever intellectually argued into the kingdom of God. Uh, You could argue someone into uh, an intellectual corner where there's just no escaping it, and many will still reject it. They'll still refuse because the problem is is a problem of the the soul. It's, It's a depravity that rejects the truth, not... Uh, an, an inability to understand the truth, but it is something that rejects the truth. This is what needs to be overcome. 
Um, so verse two, check check this out. What, what are they what are they misunder what are they uh, rejecting? Right? Let's do a survey from John chapter six. Verse two says, Many of them were following because of the miracles Jesus was doing. In particular, he was healing the sick. They were there for the affordable health care, or worse, to uh, just witness the next spectacle, the next miracle. They were uh, sign seekers, sign chasers. Verse 15, many saw Jesus as a means to advance their political agenda. He was, he was good for the party. Let's get this revolution going and kick those Romans out. Jesus is our guy, right? Let's elect him. Verse 26, many were following because they had their fill of the bread and wanted more. Free bread would be a significant boost to their their income, their economic status. And this is no different today. You know, how many people follow Jesus today only because of some of the other benefits that could be had? And the, the, the problem is this what these disciples wanted, Jesus would not give. And what Jesus offered, they would not receive. That's the problem here in our text. The disciples understood very well what Jesus meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It was this, that Jesus must be preeminent in your life. He's got to be number one. He's got to be the center. He must be your meat and drink. Your meat and drink are the things that drive you. It's what makes you tick. It's what wakes you up in the morning and and fills your thoughts. This could be any number of things. Success in a career. It could be relationships. It could be sex. It could be money. It could be possessions. Jesus has to be what drives you. It's not good enough for Jesus to be your teacher, to be your sensei, to be your inspiration, to be your example, or to be your sugar daddy. Jesus must be your center. The motor that drives you. He's got to be your meat and drink. Jesus must be your center. He must be what drives you. He can't be dabbled with or sampled. He's not a side dish or an appetizer. He's the main course. He must be your meat and drink. He must be what sustains you. Jesus must be your all or nothing at all. But when you give to Jesus that place in your life, it means surrendering control. You may have to end an ungodly relationship. You may have to end a lucrative but unethical business practice or partnership. Many want Jesus for the benefits, but they want to keep their hands on the wheel of their lives. They want to... Uh, maintain a sense of control and preserve a certain level of comfort. And the reason many people think this way is that they, they don't truly understand their need for Jesus. They believe that they are living their lives pretty well and only need a little boost from Jesus, a little help to get them over the top. So Jesus says in verses 61 and 62, Do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at this? 
Then what if I were to tell you that you would see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What Jesus is saying here is that if you're offended by this, then just you wait. There's more offense to come. Wait till you see what's going to take place that must happen in order for your sin to be forgiven. Because in John, ascension and being raised up are very closely linked. Raised up on the cross. Because indeed, it was the path to ascending that included him being raised up on the cross. If they find their need for Jesus offensive now, wait till they see him shamefully lifted up on a cross. This is what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, but we we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So if you're offended now, just wait. There's more, more to come. So the message of Jesus is that you don't just need a little help. You are completely helpless. You can't do it. You are a sinner who has failed to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You need Jesus to die for you so that you can be forgiven. And this is why Jesus says the flesh is no help at all in verse 63. This message is offensive to self-determined people. That you're not good enough. That you're not smart enough. That you're not strong enough. That you need to rely completely on another. And in this case, on Jesus' death in your place to forgive you. And that eternal life is purely by grace and by no work of your own. But for so many, it's hard to receive. Because in order to do so means admitting failure. It's like on your birthday. We have a birthday in our house today, by the way. My daughter, Caitlin, is nine, so she made it. But imagine on your birthday that uh, you get a gift. You open it up, and it's a book about how to lose weight. And you're kind of like, what? What are you trying to say here, you know? Uh, In order to receive that, you've got to admit that maybe you have a weight problem. Or maybe you open another gift and it's a book about like, how to make friends. And you're like, what are you trying to say? Like, am I? Anyway, you have to admit that you have a need for you to truly receive it. So when you receive Jesus, you have to admit that you're a sinner who can't save yourself and that you need Jesus. And then we read in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. These disciples choked on these words. They could not accept them. Now in our next point, Jesus turns to the twelve. What will be their response? So these are life-giving words. Imagine the scene. Many of Jesus' disciples walk away. These people likely gave verbal assent to Jesus being the Messiah. They were followers. Today, they would have been people not too different from you. Sitting in a pew. Baptized as a believer. A member. A leader. We're sadly all too familiar with stories of well-known Christians 
authors, speakers, musicians, even pastors who once professed faith in Jesus but have walked away. It happens. And this should cause us to pause and it should be a sobering uh, opportunity for us to, to engage in some prayerful reflection. By all outward appearances, they look just like any of us. And Jesus tells many stories that tease out this reality in the Gospels. One example is the two men who built two different houses, one on sand, one on rock. I'm willing to bet that they looked pretty similar on top, those two houses, until the storms came and revealed what it was that they were truly trusting in. And one of those houses crumbled. And then you take Jesus' parable of the, the four soils, the four different types of hearts. Three of those types of soils actually grew something. There was growth there, but only one bore fruit. And at the end of Luke 9, a man comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And you'd think that maybe Jesus was like, finally, someone who gets it, right? He's all in. But no, this is what he says. He says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus doing? What is he saying? He's saying, make sure you realize what it's going to cost you to follow me. Make sure that your motives are right in coming to me. Because following me might cost you the thing that you value most. Then towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of these prophesied. Some of them cast out demons and did other mighty works in Christ's name. But Jesus will say to them, he never knew them. So many disciples here at the end of John 6 walk away. Things are not looking so up for Jesus' movement. It's possible that not many more than the 12 were left at this point. Now, if Jesus were to bring in a consultant, they might say, hey, Jesus, come on, you got to, like, fix your message a little bit. It's a little harsh. You know, stop calling people sinners. You know, it turns people off. You know, people are going to walk away. But it's not looking good. 20,000 at the start of John chapter 6, and now we're down to the 12. And Jesus puts the question to the 12. Verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Now, I think Jesus asked this question more for their sake, not for his own. After, after seeing, after witnessing a, a massive crowd walk away, essentially. I think Jesus knew that they needed to hear themselves articulate this more than Jesus needed to hear it from them. Christians, you need to answer this question too. When the world around you chokes on Jesus' teaching and finds him intolerable, when it's not popular to follow Jesus, why don't you leave? Why do you stay? When celebrity Christians ditch their faith in Christ 
people you may have once looked up to. It can rattle you a bit. Why do you stay? When things get tough, are you in or out? I love Peter's response to Jesus' question. Lord, to whom are we going to go? Where else, where else do we go? Peter displays a humble desperation here by expressing the fact that there is nowhere else to go. Their backs are against the wall. Jesus is all they've got. And that's what we need to come to realize, church, is that Jesus is really all we've got. Everything can be taken from us. Following Jesus won't always be popular. I think we can see that in our world today. Peter knows that he has no resources to improve his condition. The flesh is no help at all. This is the first step to becoming a Christian in the first place. You've got to know that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself. And every follower of Christ has to reconcile with the fact that no matter how hard things become, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. And then Peter identifies the solution to his desperation. He says, you have the words of eternal life. He acknowledges that only Jesus has the spirit without measure and utters the very words of God that have the power to bring life. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And lastly, Peter says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Believe and know are, are, are synonyms here. They're, they're expressing, they're being used to express trust. That's the final step to becoming a Christian. Knowing that you can't save yourself. And then trusting Jesus, the only one who can. So while many of the disciples choked on Jesus' words, Peter surrendered to them and he found eternal life how will you respond to jesus there's one final comfort in this chapter and it's a thread that's been running through the whole thing and it kind of comes to a climax here at the very end this is my last point this is the final word notice at the beginning of the chapter we've talked about this already a little bit Twenty thousand people gathered to see jesus but as the chapter progresses, there's a theme. There's a theme of growing resistance to Jesus. And as the resistance grows, the number shrinks. The number of followers dwindles until we get to the very end of the chapter and we're perhaps just left with the 12. But even among the 12, we learn at the very end, there's a devil among them. Now, it could look like the devil is winning here. Jesus' popularity is decreasing. He doesn't have big as, a, as big of a platform anymore. You know, he's got to figure something out if he's really going to get this movement off the ground. But no, it's, it's going in the reverse order that you, that you would expect or that you would hope for. So it, it appears that the devil is winning here. Or if we leave the devil out of this altogether, it could appear that the stubborn unbelief of man is frustrating the purposes of God. That man alone has the key to his soul and has locked God out from the inside. But is that what's really happening? 
That's not what John chapter 6 is saying. All through this chapter, we see that even resistance is in the sovereign hands of God, and it is he who has the final word. Let me show this to you. Remember back to verse 37. Jesus says, All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He said that in response to their resistance, to their unbelief. Unbelief does not rattle or frustrate Jesus because the Father has given some and they will come to him. Or look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This this verse teaches that all those who do come to Jesus do so because the Father draws them. Again, unbelief is not obstructing the plans or frustrating the plans and work of God. And now look at verse uh, 64 and 65. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Again, it's not the resistance of man that is sovereign over God. No, it's the other way around. When left to themselves, people will naturally resist God until he grants them to come. Lastly, we come to the one positive example of belief in this chapter, Peter's confession. And immediately after, Jesus reminds Peter He says, remember, I chose you first. So don't go getting any ideas about how much more clever or intelligent you are than those other slobs who didn't get get what I was saying. The flesh is no help at all. There's only the spirit that gives life. But then Jesus also reveals his knowledge of the fact that one of the twelve is a devil. And he put him there. He knows about it. You know, you might say there was a mole on the inside, right? That's a problem. But Jesus knows about it. This just further illustrates how supreme God is over this whole situation that looks like such a failure. So there's there's reassurance all throughout John chapter 6, as the resistance grows, as the numbers dwindle, that God is in control. And we can look at our world today and think, oh man, Christians are, you know, not really popular anymore in our culture. You know, we're we're painted in in negative lights. We're we're backwards people, right? Uh, We're we're shown as ignorant and uh, whatever on on TV and, and movies, right? We can think, this is not good. This is not good PR for the church. What are we going to do? We've got to trust and know that God is in control. God is in control of it all. He's sovereign over it, even when things look like a failure. So when life gets tough, and it feels like our enemy is winning, or you're not sure that you have the strength to keep holding on, remember, that the flesh is no help at all. You can't hold on. But take courage, knowing that it is Jesus who holds on to you. 
He has the words of eternal life. He is the one who saves you. And if he saves you, he will keep you to the end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have chosen us, that you've called us, that the Father has drawn us. Father, may, may we be kept from pride and arrogance, thinking that we somehow were smart enough, we're clever enough to figure it out. Remind us that the flesh is no help at all, that left to ourselves, we're dead on our sins and our trespasses and need to be made alive. Father, we thank you for the, uh, the words of eternal life that you have spoken through your Son. Thank you that we have them preserved in the pages of our scriptures. Father, may we love your word. May we love our Bibles because they point us to Jesus, because they point us to you. Father, help us to grow in that knowledge and grow in our appreciation of your grace that is free and so good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.